And I'll back up what our student minister uh, said. He's making a shift. There will continue to be opportunities on Sunday mornings for students, but he feels that in order to do his job well, to help us disciple our students, is that Wednesday nights, uh, there has to be that occupation of time there. So that means you got to come out and bring your children, your students, uh, unless they drive and they can get here on their own. But then also uh, in August, no, excuse me, September, we'll begin Wednesday nights again with huddle groups. So many opportunities for adults as well as for students to grow as disciples of Jesus. Also, I want to thank you for uh, your prayers. I asked you to pray last Sunday that the Lord would provide um, by solidifying the place that we're doing our outreach event at, and that's Carter Lawrence Magnet School. God heard your prayers, and on Thursday, we got the word that we will be able to occupy their parking lot and a portion of their school to do the outreach. I don't uh, have the time today to give you more details. I'll give you more details on how you will participate because I'm believing we're going to have at least 100 people from Strong Tower helping us on that day. Um, we're working in a conglomerate with other churches, and I'm believing we're going to have at least 100 volunteers who are going to help people. I'll tell you more about it uh, the next couple of weeks, uh, but amen, it, it's working. Also, I told you a couple of weeks ago that the Lord also heard our prayers about needing transportation so we can pick up students on Wednesday night and people on Sunday morning. Um, and there was a donor who stepped forward and his foundation is going to make sure the check is in our mailbox by Wednesday this week so that Pastor Jerry can go on Thursday to pick up our 15-passenger 2017 van, okay? So God answers prayer. He answers prayer. So keep praying, keep praying, keep praying, keep talking to him. Uh, are the Rhyme Chisel girls here? All right, I see you, Maura and Elise. Um, how was Haiti? Okay, come on up here. I want you to just tell a little bit about Haiti, okay? You know, Pastor, you know I got to always find those who are ready. Because when we go, when we go to the world, and when we come back and we share, we are reminded once again that God is global and that there's so much more to the world than our world. So we need to hear what Jesus is doing around the world. So sisters, uh, tell us a little bit. <laughs> um, I was very excited to go on the trip, but I think just seeing the most beautiful parts of the country and the most devastating parts and just how God is working in both places for all the people there and just seeing how God worked through me, like through the kids and through the transporters and the teachers and just our amazing team, and then how I could, in return, work for the people of Haiti and spread God's love. And then I think my biggest takeaway was um, just seeing how faithful the people were there, and even in their poverty and their little uh, shacks of homes, and just seeing how they pray and pray for us. So, yeah. Um, so, okay, so I um, was called to go to Haiti in about February of this year, 
And a lot of people say, oh yeah, the week before my missions trip, I was really stressed out, and the enemy was obviously working, and God decided to give me like three months of just really hard um, semester in college. It was my second semester of college, and it was just really difficult. And I got to the end of the semester, and I was like, I don't think I even really believe in God enough and his love and his faithfulness to go on this trip. And God really sent me friends that could encourage me in the last few days of school, and just this amazing peace before I left, that it was okay going to Haiti and feeling broken, um, because the people there were not perfect either. And it was such an honor to see the kingdom of God in Haiti, um, and then also to return and to have this week to see the kingdom of God in America. And it's just beautiful that, that God exists in Haiti and here as well. So, yeah. Thank you, ladies. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And Scott Oldsvall, your wife is in Uganda with the children. You're by yourself. It's going to be two weeks. Amen. I still got two. Thank you for the work that you guys have been doing in Uganda through 147. And then also, it's good to see Shanika here today. Shanika, it's good to see you. Amen. Clifton, how's she doing? Amen. Amen. Her mother went home to be with Jesus a couple of weeks ago and the family went up for the homegoing celebration. And so it's good to see you in the house today. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Now I'll begin reading in verse 14. And the Bible says, and when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashing his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. 
And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So let me continue this thought today, evicting the spirit of American racism, part two. Let's pray. Thank you for the kingdom of God. Jesus, you said that it's with us, it's in us. But the kingdom is also coming. The kingdom is here and it's also not yet. We thank you, Lord, that we can occupy until you, the King of Kings, comes. And as our elders said, Lord, the gates of hell cannot prevail against your church because you've given us your authority to bind and to loose. Thank you for the keys of the kingdom. And one of those keys is the word of God, the sword of the spirit, the truth of God. Lord, as I speak your word, I pray that you would use it to encourage every heart under the sound of my voice. Lord, today we will be educated. Today, Lord, we will be made aware of some things. And hopefully, Lord, we will also be called to action. Lord, would you fill in every blank that I missed today? Would you answer the questions that may arise? May this sermon, as well as we pray for every sermon, stimulate a desire in us to know you and to know your word, to study, to show ourselves approved, workers who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, as well as boldly living the word of truth. Thank you for this house, for this church. Thank you for what you birthed so many years ago. Thank you for the privilege of being here. Now, Lord, speak to your body through these limited lips of clay. As you told Moses, I will be with you. I will be with your mouth. Lord, be with my mouth today as we ask you to be with the ears and hearts of your people. For it's in Christ's name that I pray it all. Amen. I call your attention to verse 21. So he, Jesus, asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And my first question is, did the God who asked the question in verse 21 already know the answer? And we covered that briefly last week, and the answer is, of course, Jesus knew the answer. When Jesus asked the father, how long has this demon been with your child? He was not asking the question to gain information, but he was asking the question as a means of engaging fellowship and community with the man. He wanted the man to feel heard. He wanted the man to feel like he was valued in that moment. As the omniscient God, Jesus knew the answer to the question before he asked the question because he is omniscient. But the second question I have is, did the God who asked the question in verse 21 allow the evil that occurred in this boy's life? That's a heavy question with an even heavier answer. So the first question is, did the Lord know? And the answer is, yes, he did. But then the second question is, did the Lord allow this demon to occupy this boy? And if we believe that God is sovereign, and if we believe that nothing can happen in the universe without his divine permission, 
then that must mean that God did allow this demon to enter this boy. This demon just didn't act on its own accord. This demon just didn't go in and do what it wanted to do. It could only do what God allowed it to do, which is why one of God's names is the Lord of hosts, the angelic hosts. They must have permission to do anything. God must allow them. And in this case, the Lord allowed this demon to enter this boy's life. Now, let me say this to you. Jesus was not the direct cause of evil, but he allowed the evil to occur. And so people will ask that question about God. Is God the originator of evil? No, God is not the originator of evil. He did not create evil, but he did allow evil out of a free will decision, out of a fallen angel. And so there is evil in the earth. God is not the direct cause of evil, but because he is sovereign, he allows, <clears throat> excuse me, he allows evil to occur. And he does this. Why does he do this? Why does he allow evil to occur? He allows it to occur for his own glory and for a greater purpose that many times is not known to us. So God allows evil for his own glory and for a greater purpose. In John chapter 9, if you recall, uh, they had come across a blind man, a man who had been blind from birth, and the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or his parents? And Jesus said in John chapter 9, he said, neither. This man nor his parents sinned to bring about the judgment or the result of blindness. Because in that day and time, many people felt if something bad happened to you, that meant you did something bad. But that's not always the case. That's pharisaical, legalistic thinking. No, 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 no. Jesus said neither he nor the parents sinned to produce the blindness. But he went on to say, but this has occurred for the glory of God. So God allowed this man to be born blind for his own purposes and for his own glory. Because in a moment, Jesus was about to do what? Heal the man so that more people could understand that Christ was the Messiah and give God glory. So God allows evil for his own purposes and for his own glory. The Bible says in the book of Psalms that his ways are higher than our ways. And God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. The Bible says that God is the potter and we are the clay. And the clay has no right to question the potter saying, why did you make me this way? Why, as you're writing my book, Psalm 139, where it says he's written uh, our lives in his book before any of our days came to pass. And on some of those pages, there are going to be some tough places, some hard places, even him allowing some evil to occur in your life. And we'll question the author. We'll question the potter. But how dare we question God when we are finite, limited, sinful, fallen, depraved beings? This is where faith has to come in. Like we sang last week, he's a good, good father. So even when things are bad, our theology must inform us that God is still good. And God is still able to do what? To cause everything to work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Anybody love God in here? Anybody love God? Anybody love God? I love him. I love him. But loving God doesn't mean you won't have some bad stuff happen. 
Loving God doesn't mean that you won't have some evil things occur in your life. But the God that we love because he first loved us says, I can take all of these ingredients just like baking a cake and I can work it together for good because you love me and you're called according to my purpose. So God knows how to work this stuff out. All things. All means all and that's all all means. And he can work all things out including, including 400 years of Hebrew slavery to the Egyptians. Now that was evil, that was bad, but that was still a part of Israel's history. And it was a history that while they were in it in time and space, they did not understand the ways and the thoughts of God and what he was going to do to bring them through it and to bring them out of it and the purpose for all of it. But God was with them. He never left them. He never forsook them. And he was working all things together, including slavery and bondage to the Egyptians. If you have a copy of God's word or on your phone, look at Genesis chapter 14 real quickly. Genesis chapter 14. Because God allowed slavery. But we're even going to see from this passage, he even ordained it. Oh, my goodness. Say what? Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Then he said to Abram. So, bruh man's name hadn't even been changed yet to Abraham. He's still Abram. So, he's still early in this process of being a father of a great nation. So, the Lord said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them. And they will afflict them 400 years. Stop and pause. So before it happened in time and space, God had already told Abram what was going to happen prophetically. So before it ever occurred, and remember, this is a man whose wife is barren. They haven't even had Isaac yet. And God is saying, not only are you going to get a great nation from me, but this nation is also going to go into suffering and slavery. For 400 years. Now, when it comes to words of prophecy, a lot of times we like the positive stuff. Oh, tell me I'm going to have a child. Yeah, yeah, tell me, tell me all the good stuff. But sometimes if a prophet is truly speaking today, there'll not only be some good stuff, but there'll also be some tough stuff. Like Jesus telling Peter, you're going to be crucified upside down. That's how you're going to glorify me. Uh, if many of these so-called prophets went around today having conferences like that, where they told people some negative stuff, them prophecy conferences wouldn't last too long. And Jesus gave Abram a prophecy that there would be slavery in the future of your people. So he not only allows it, but we see here that God ordains it. And it says in verse 14, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, I don't know why God does stuff like that. I don't know why God allowed that or ordained it, but he did. And because he's God, he does not ask for my opinion or even my uh, 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 uh Agreement with what he does. Uh, again, he's the potter and I am the clay. So slavery was not only allowed for the Jews, it was ordained for the Jews. Now, last week we talked about evicting this spirit of racism in America. And the principle from last week is in order to see God evict this thing, we've got to call it what it is. That racism is an ugly thing. It's a murderous spirit. It's an unclean spirit. It's an ugly thing. So in order to see God evicted, 
Let's stop playing with it and let's call it what it is. Let's not try to minimize it. Let's not shift blame. Let's call it what it is. Just like this man said, it's a deaf and dumb spirit. Let's call it what it is. Racism is an ugly, unclean, evil spirit. And in order to see it lifted off of America, maybe even off of our ancestors or the residue that may even rest on us, we need to call it what it is. That was last week. Well, today, in order to see this spirit evicted, we've got to believe that God is sovereign. Because if we don't believe that God is sovereign, even and especially when things are bad and evil, then we will jump immediately into the flesh. We will be more sociological than spiritual. We will try to take matters into our own hands as opposing to trusting God to give us strength in our hands to do his work, the work of justice. So we've got to see that God is sovereign, that my times are in his hands and not in the hands of any man or woman. Uh-huh. We've got to see that. We've got to see that. So join me today because we're going to look at three similar purposes for Hebrew slavery and African slavery. Because the same God who allowed and ordained Hebrew slavery is the same God, the sovereign God, the God we just worship. He's the same God who allowed and even ordained African slavery. We are spiritual people. We, we are the people of God. And again, all of our days were written in his book before any of them came to be. And he's a good God, even when things are bad and when he allows evil. So stay with me as we look at these similarities between Hebrew slavery and African slavery. Number one, God had a purpose in slavery, which was to show the depravity of man. So the first thing, one of his purposes in slavery was to show the depravity of man. There's an old song that says, how low can you go? Well, we're about to see how low man can go. Because as it pertains to the Jews, Joseph, one of the patriarchs in the Old Testament, there was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Joseph, we know the story, and if you don't, it's found in Genesis chapter 37. So I will only allude to the story. But I what I want you to see today is that Joseph's own brothers, the other ten leaders of Israel, Benjamin was too young to participate in, in what happened to Joseph, but Joseph's ten brothers... Uh, Gad and Asher and Naphtali and Judah and Reuben, all these guys, Issachar, they captured their brother and they sold him into slavery. So you know you have gone down low if you sell your own brother in slavery. But that's just evidence of the depravity of man. And one of the things that fueled this was not only jealousy, they were envious of their brother because their father, he played favorites, and you know the story, Joseph had the Technicolor dream coat and all that kind of stuff. He was a tattletale, and so the brothers, man, they, they didn't like this guy. Now, now you have family members and, and stuff, folks that you don't like, but I hope it doesn't go so far as you're willing to sell your family to the highest bidder. <laughs> Put your hand down. <laughs> so they were jealous, but they were also motivated by money. We talked about it again last week. Money is not evil. Money is a tool. 
but don't let it make you a fool. Because the love of money is what leads to all kinds of evil. Even a kind of evil to either sell yourself or to buy other people or to sell other people. And that's what happened for 20 shekels of silver. So let's see here, 10 brothers, 20 shekels, they ended up getting two shekels each. How do you go spend your two shekels with a clear conscience, knowing that not only you sold your brother, you captured him, you sold him, but then you're going to go home and lie to your father and say that an animal ate your brother and his son up. Like we asked last week, what kind of spirit was that? That wasn't the spirit of Jehovah operating in them, and if it wasn't his spirit, what spirit was that energizing the flesh in those brothers? And so they sold their own brother into slavery. Well, Africans captured other Africans and sold them to Europeans. Uh-huh. Yet you won't always hear this in school or other places, but you're going to hear it in the church because the church should be a place where you should hear the truth. And so as Joseph's brothers, Jewish guys, sold their own Jewish brother to the Ishmaelites who sold him to the Egyptians, so Africans sold Africans to Europeans. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it is true. And I did not know this until 20 years ago. So I was invited to Africa for the first time. The first time I went to Africa, it was on an invitation. I was part of a group of men in Franklin called the Empty Hands Fellowship. Uh, guys coming together across racial denominational lines. And, and man, th th there was a stirring happening with that group of guys. And people heard about it from around the country. And even it reached into Africa where members from our group were invited, listen to this, by the president of Benin, West Africa. His name was Matthew Karakou. He had just become a Christian. And so he wanted to make things right, and he wanted to tell the truth about the African slave trade. So he invited dignitaries from all over the world to come to Benin so that he, on behalf of his ancestors, could apologize to Africans in the diaspora. That's me. I came here as a legacy of slavery. He wanted to apologize to me and Reverend Denson for the sins of his ancestors for selling Africans to Europeans. That's not what I always heard. I always heard it was the white man, it was the white man, it was the white man. And yeah, the white man's fingerprints are at the crime scene. <laughs> but we cannot forget that it was Africans who also participated. Why is that? It's the love of money that is the root to all kinds of evil. I learned that when the Europeans arrived on the shores of Africa in the early 1400s to trade with the African chiefs, they brought with them manufactured goods, weapons, and alcohol. The chiefs traded prisoners of war and criminals for these goods. African kingdoms prospered from the slave trade, and competition occurred between tribes for the white man's business. The sentence of slavery replaced other criminal sentences, and capturing slaves became a motivation for war rather than an outcome of war. So they would have these tribal wars, and so they would capture people and make them POWs, prisoners of war. 
and they may even be slaves within their own African society. So slavery was a part of the African culture. And so it wasn't new. It wasn't invented by white folks. But when the white folks came, the chiefs traded people for goods, traded people for things. And so thus it began. Now, Africans were captured by other Africans and Europeans. When I was early, uh, young, 1979, when Roots first came out, I didn't understand that dynamic when you would see the Africans working with the Europeans to capture Kunta Kinte. I didn't understand all of that. Uh, but now I look and I see, okay, they had to work together. Just like Pilate and Herod, who hated each other, worked together <laughs> to see Jesus put to death. You'll see people come together, not only for good things. Look at the Tower of Babel. People can come together to accomplish humanistic and even evil causes because it's about that money. It's about that prestige. It's about that power. And so I learned some things while I was in Benin. I also learned many of the same things that were in uh, Ghana, which was another country on the western coast of Africa, where millions upon millions of Africans were sent out on slave ships to come to the Americas and even into Europe. I learned a lot. And the Europeans had to work with the Africans to capture Africans in the bush or in land. And once they captured them, they would chain them together. Men, women, boys and girls. They would be stripped naked, chained by the neck as if it were a yoke around the neck. And they would be marched inland for miles out to the coast. Some Africans died going to the coast, just marching inland out to the coast. And once they got to the coast, the proof that my ancestors assisted the Europeans in the breaking of Africans is that there are so many ritualistic things from the African culture that prepared the Africans to board slave ships. For instance, there was the auction tree. And after the auction tree, where they would be bid upon and examined, they would then go to the whipping tree. And after they would be whipped, they would then be placed into what is called the house or the hut of darkness. So hundreds of Africans would be crammed into a room that had no light in it, and they would be left there for days. That was to prepare them for what was going to happen on the slave ships. So it, it was like practice for the slave ships. So after they would take them out of the house of darkness, they would then take them to the tree of forgetfulness so that they would forget Africa. Then they would be taken to another tree. Well, after the tree of forgetfulness, they would march around the tree in African custom. They would march around the tree. Then they would go through what is called the gate of no return. So they would walk out of the slave forts that were built by the Europeans. And one of them in Ghana is called Elmina. They would walk out through a gate, and that gate would be called gate of no return. And the Africans would say this, your bodies are departing away from Africa. But upon death, we believe your soul, your spirit, will come back to Africa. So the slave, uh, excuse me, the Africans participated with the Europeans in the slave trade and added many of the rituals of, of the African people. Again, I did not know that. I did not know that. But I learned a lot. So when you know stuff like that, not that I was one who blamed the white man, but when you know stuff like that, you've got to now say, Black folks are culpable for the mess that black folks are in today. So for those of you who always want to point at what white people are or are not doing, you better point a thumb because uh, there's nothing new under the sun. 
We were selling ourselves out back then, and we're still selling ourselves out today. And that's why it takes some black people to confront other black people about mess that we're doing in our culture. Just because you black don't give you a pass to be ignorant. We will call you out up in here. <laughs> oh, man. I got to keep rolling. I got to keep rolling. And white folks, you do call your own out too, right? Man, it's quiet. White folks, you do call your own out too. Now you got to picture this. While Joseph is in a hole, again, we're talking about depravity, his brothers are sitting down to have a meal. When you read Genesis 37, look at that. Don't miss that. Their own brother is in a hole with no water. They're thinking about killing him. Reuben says, don't kill him, don't kill him. So then they say, okay, we'll sell him then. So while Reuben is gone, they sell him to the Ishmaelite traders. But dig this, they're sitting down eating a meal while their brother's in a hole, no doubt crying out, saying, hey, get me out of here. What are y'all doing? What kind of spirit is that? And when you think about the African slave trade, that African chiefs could see their people like that, giving them over, never to see the continent of Africa again. What kind of spirit was that? But not only that, for the Europeans who built these forts on the coast of Africa, not only did they build these, the, these uh, forts to house Africans, and when you go and tour some of these, you can even smell you can even see the, the blood stains on the floor. Like, it's still there. Like, there's a spirit of death still there. But they also had the nerve to build churches right on the coast. So as they are seeing humans sent into slave ships and packed like sardines, they will go into their churches and worship their God. How do you do that? What spirit was that? Oh, my goodness. So God had a purpose in slavery, and that's to show men how low you can go to sell your own people. But secondly, God had a purpose in slavery, which was to show his power to deliver the slave. Oh, yeah, here, here comes redemption. Here it comes. So for the Jews, God who ordained and allowed them to go into slavery to the Egyptians, who were also, according to the book of Exodus, hard task masters, okay? God allowed that. God used that for his own purposes and glory. And once he brought them through, remember he sent all the plagues to get them out. He brought them through the Red Sea. And in the Old Testament, the Red Sea was their Calvary moment. That was their moment of deliverance to know that their God loved them by delivering them from Egypt and bringing them to the Red Sea. So when they would talk about the Red Sea, that's like you and I remembering the Lord through communion, through Calvary, the cross, the empty grave. That's their significant moment. The grave, the cross, that's our significant moment. And so right before they got the Ten Commandments on the Mount of Sinai, the preamble of the Ten Commandments says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Then he goes on and gives them the commandments. So in the preamble, he wants the Jewish people to know and not forget who their deliverer was. Now, God used Moses in the process, but they were not to mistake Moses as the emancipator of the people. God said, I am the one 
who brought you out. And he kept on saying, I'm going to bring you out with a mighty hand. And we saw the mighty hand of God. And again, I can't elaborate on the story and how God used the blood and all of that to bring the Israelites out of 400 years of captivity. But then for Africans, who set Africans free in America? The Emancipation Proclamation did not set the slaves free. It was a wartime document, so it really had no legal power. Yet it was pronounced, but no, it didn't technically set Africans free. The Civil War, that war between brothers, you know, white on white crime, that thing that Civil War was white on white crime. People always talk about black on black crime as if other folks don't fight within their own tribes. Civil War was white on white crime. And that's why I don't use the term black on black crime anymore because until we start talking about what other folks are doing to each other, we're not going to be the only ones talking about as if we're the only ones that kill each other. We're not the only ones. People who live in close proximity commit the most crimes against each other. We're not going to let the world tell the lie that black people are savages to the point where they kill each other black on black crime. Now, other folks are killing other folks, too. So the Civil War, say it with me, was white on white crime. That didn't free us either. Well, Abraham Lincoln, as good as he was, he wasn't the one who freed three to six million African slaves in America either. Because if you dig a little deeper on Honest Abe, he was a politician. And Abe was like, man, how do I save the Union and deal with the slave issue? The Union is of priority, not the slave. Matter of fact, if you dig a little bit deeper, Abraham Lincoln wanted to send us back to Africa. That was one of his thoughts and solutions. But Frederick Douglass said, man, you can't do that. So whenever somebody talk about sending us back, or you can leave here after we done built here. I don't know what spirit that is. That ain't God's spirit. You ain't sending us nowhere. You shouldn't have brought us here. We here now. We here now. This is our home now. And if I go back to Africa, it's by choice. No, 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 no. Oh, Lord, I wish I had time to work that one for a minute. But God used Lincoln. He used the Civil War. He used the Emancipation Proclamation, of course, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution to bring about slavery. All of that was, I mean, the end of slavery, that was part of the process. But let's not get it twisted. God is the deliverer of African people in America. So he gets all the glory, not a man. He gets all the glory, not the government. Oh, I wish I could chase some of these rabbits, but I'm going to keep on going. The third thing I want you to see is that God had a purpose in slavery, which was to save many lives through the slave. Oh, look, we got to see the kingdom, the upside down nature of the kingdom. So the first point, he had a purpose in slavery, which was to show man's depravity, brothers selling brothers. Secondly, his purpose was to show his power to deliver the slave. And then finally, his purpose in slavery was to save many lives through the slave. So for the Jews, what are we talking about, Pastor? Genesis 45, 5. Joseph said, but now do not therefore be grieved or angry that you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. So he could have been salty. 
on his brothers and sold them. But Joseph was driven by his theology and not merely by his sociology. And in his theology, he knew that God was in control even when things got out of control. What you did to me was wrong. But what I see God working this thing together in the grand scheme of things, you may have sold me, but God sent me. And not only did he send me, he sent me here to save your life. He sent me here to save the lives of the people who persecuted my own family, and he also sent me here to save the lives of the Egyptians, the ones who put me in jail falsely, accusing me of raping this woman. I ain't touched that woman. They still put him in jail. And he says, I'm here to save Egyptians and even Jews because I understand God's sovereign power in my life. When you understand his sovereignty, you don't have time for a bitter spirit. And when you're bitter and you're angry, you're putting too much focus on man and not enough focus on God. We've got to believe nothing happens in our lives or in the lives of our ancestors without God's divine permission and approval. It must go through his fingers of love, grace, and care. And we've got to trust his mind, or excuse me, his heart when we don't understand his mind. Lord, I don't understand why, but I'm going to trust who? I'm going to trust you. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph went on to say to his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for what? Good. Romans 8, 28 in the Old Testament. In order to bring it about as it is to this day, what does he say? To save many people alive. God is going to use a slave to save the lives of two nations. A slave who could interpret dreams. A slave who had the understanding on how to survive a drought and a famine. God took that man up out of prison and made him number two in the land to Pharaoh. Only God could do that to save. God is always about saving lives. So if he allows something bad to happen, we need to look for the salvific moment in it. How can he save a life through this? Not just the soul, but somebody's life so they can eat and live and survive a drought. You see, Joseph is a type of Christ. Like Jesus, Joseph was innocent, but he was treated as guilty. He ended up delivering those who delivered him over to death. He became a slave to save his enslavers. Oh, my God. And in a sense, Joseph experienced a resurrection When he appeared to his brothers, they thought he was dead because a lot of time elapsed from Genesis 37 to chapter 50 when they see their brother in the latter chapters of Genesis. It's like a resurrection had occurred. He's a type of Christ. Well, as far as Christ is concerned, at the cross, we see God's servant hanging there. The Old Testament calls Jesus God's servant. Now, that's another word for a slave. Jesus was God's slave. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 that when Jesus became a man, he took upon him the form of a servant. The word servant is the Greek word doulos, which means bond slave. And that means you have a relationship with your master to serve him. And so Jesus had a relationship with his father to serve him. To do what? To save many folks' lives. Jesus became a slave to save slaves of sin 
from sin. Oh, this is the upside down nature of the kingdom. Because at the cross, God saves through tragedy. God saves through death at the cross. At the cross, Jesus turns negativity into positivity. And so if God can do that with the cross, what can he do with slavery? He can use it, and he has been using it for his glory. Because in Christianity, God saves slaves through a slave. God, Jesus, was God's slave. And that slave is my savior. Which is why the African-American church got a hold of the gospel in a way that the oppressive, Eurocentric Western church did not. Whereas the European folks in America had a very head knowledge and orthodoxy, but the slave church could identify with the Savior who could identify with them, who was a slave like them, who was sold like them. Because just as Joseph was sold for money, Judas sold Jesus out for money. So they could understand, they could connect with Jesus in the spiritual realm, and they could write those gospel songs, and they could write those uh, sermons. They could preach out of this soulish place. Because they not only had orthodoxy, they had orthopraxy. And God met them there. And that's why the slave church in America is one of the greatest forms of God's power being displayed. Because in the field, I was the N-word. In the field, you called me a boy. But in the church, I was Reverend John. In the church, I was Deacon Jones. In the church, I had dignity. And that's another reason black folks like to stay in church all day. Because when we got in God's presence on Sunday, oh, Lord. We got love and encouragement. All of that in God's presence. The Holy Ghost met us. And, and we were trying to stay as far away from the fields and the shacks as possible. We'd meet them in the brush. We'd be outside worshiping. We'd put blankets up on the trees so we could shout and dance. Going back even to our African heritage, man, and let it out. It's power. God uses the despised things to put to shame those who are proud. He uses the weak to show the strong, you ain't that strong. And that's what God does, and that's what God did. So for the early Africans, God has used Africans to save many lives. Yes, he has. In Acts chapter 8, there was an Ethiopian eunuch who had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was a seeker, but he left Jerusalem as one who found the Lord. Because Stephen led him, or Philip rather, led him to the Lord. And the Bible says he went home rejoicing. Well, where was home? Home was Africa. So this means that the gospel of Jesus Christ reached Africa in the first century, 1300, excuse me, uh, uh, 13 centuries before the European slave traders got there. What does all that mean? Jesus was in Africa saving folks, building his church, the Coptic church, long before the Europeans came, not only enslaving, but bringing their brand of the gospel to, to, as missionaries to give those African savages the good news. No, those African beautiful, blessed folk created in the image of God knew Jesus Christ long before the slave traders got there. So it is a lie to think that Christianity is the white man's religion 
and that it was used to keep black folks docile and submitted to a white man and a white Jesus. When the truth is, according to the Bible, Acts chapter 8, that Africans heard the gospel, got the gospel long before the white man ever arrived in Africa. Oh, because if we don't know that truth, many brothers will leave Christianity and turn to the nation of Islam. When they tell brothers that that's nothing but the white man's religion. No, you say it's not the white man's religion. It's the God man's religion. I tell you that. That's whose religion it is. It's the God man's religion. Oh, man, I love it. And many of the early church fathers were African. Somehow through history, they whitened up. We're talking about saving many lives, even through theology. Tertullian was African. Origen was African. Athanasius was African. And the great Augustine was also African, the Bishop of Hippo. So, 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 but, but if, if we don't want to believe that those people have intelligence, we can't say that they're church fathers. We have to rebrand them and make them white. And that's another lie of white supremacy. It tries to make you think that only white people are intelligent and not other people that God has created. So that's why when Roseanne Barr calls people apes, what she's doing, she's going back to that spirit that dehumanized Africans. Because if you can dehumanize them, or as Martin Luther King said, thingify them, then you feel justified enslaving and abusing them. But if you value their personhood, you can't compare them to animals. But if you don't see the imago dei in them or the image of God, you will not only call them animals, but you will treat them like animals. So that's why Roseanne has to be called to the carpet quickly on stuff like that. <laughs> oh, man. But not only that, y'all, as I take my seat, God has used African Americans to save many lives. He's used Africans. He's also used African Americans. In the past, Harriet Tubman saved many lives. The United States colored troops saved many lives. Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, Mary McLeod Bethune, literally Charles Drew, who created blood plasma, saved many lives. Madam C.J. Walker saved many lives as the first African-American woman to be a millionaire by employing people from her community. Thurgood Marshall saved many lives. We are in this place today because of what he was able to do before the Supreme Court to put down separate and equal. The Tuskegee Airmen, Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, John Lewis, Fannie Lee Hamer, I could go on and on and on. One of the reasons why America is as blessed as we are is because of the contributions that people of color have made to the fabric of American history. <laughs> Man, we took lemons and made lemonade. We took the N-word and turned it around and even made it an affectionate term of endearment within the slave community. Oh, Pastor, why you say that? We just had a way of turning stuff around and making something good out of it. Oh, man. Now, I'm not telling you to go up out of here calling each other the N-word. I ain't saying that. <laughs> but white folks, let me throw this at you. Before you just get so appalled that black people will say that word today, let's remember where the word came from in the first place. Your ancestors invented and created the N-word. 
not black people. Your ancestors did. So if we try to tell black people, stop using that word, and we should stop using it, okay? But if you try to tell them without a context of history, <laughs> that's a matriarchal or patriarchal spirit again of you trying to chastise black people without recognizing how culpable you are when we first were called Negro, Negra, Nigger, African, African-American, Afro-American, colored, all of these names, we went through the spectrum because you kept classifying what our identity was. And if you don't take responsibility as far as your ancestors with that, hmm, all right? So all of us got to work in this thing. Oh, man, I love it. It got quiet. Let me move on. <laughs> well, today, many blacks are saving lives in America. John Perkins, Barbara Skinner, Tony Evans and his daughter Priscilla Shira, T.D. Jakes. These folks got thousands of people coming to their church. Their books and TV shows are reaching masses, not just white, black people, but white people, brown people, Latino people, native people. President Barack and Michelle Obama have saved many lives. Why? Because they gave a lot of people in the black community hope. Hope in so many ways. You may disagree with their politics, and I disagree with some of their politics. But you can't disagree that it was a beautiful thing for eight years to see a man love his wife without one scandal coming along. Man, that saved some folk, man. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, boy. But not only that, Colin Powell has been used. LeBron James is saving many lives. How's he doing that? You know how many kids he's sending to college? He's just not bouncing the basketball lady on Fox News. <laughs> He's making a difference in his community. <laughs> and then there's James Shaw, who saved lives just in Antioch a couple weeks ago. <laughs> and then last but not least, what about Bishop Carey at the wedding, y'all, for, the, for uh, Prince Harry and his wife, man? This brother... <laughs> With 29.2 million people watching, he preached the good news of Jesus Christ. He pastored that moment. He started off trying to be regal and, you know, trying to follow all the mandates. And then the Holy Ghost kicked in on that brother. He said, hey, hey. <laughs> That's how we do. <laughs> but not only in the past, not only in the present, there are black people in this church saving lives who descended from slaves, who descended from oppression. Dr. Joseph Ozine in this church is saving many lives. She's going to hate that I'm calling her out, but she's the brainchild of the Bless Fest. Lasagna Thompson has been used to save many lives for years through Baby Girls Club. And man, she's saving many lives. Bernard Pollard, he's not here so I can talk about him. Through his foundation, they feed. He and Megan feed people throughout the year. Cecilia Porsche, Isaiah Marshall, Tiffany Russ has been used in her school whereby uh, undocumented students, all of her students who are not documented are now going to college. She's saving many lives. Many lives. Oh, man, this is good. Only God can make beautiful things out of ashes. Joyce Davis, Atarius Kalia, Cheryl Frierson, they're saving lives, and even yours truly has been used by God to save many lives. 
for so many years going out into the streets doing evangelism, going into other countries doing evangelism, but also making disciples who make disciples to change the world in Strong Tower Bible Church. He didn't have to use me, but I was saved by a slave, Jesus, and he called me to go out in his name and make disciples for his glory and for his purposes. And I was able to do that without assimilation. You know, a lot of times for black folks to be heard by white folk, black folk got to assimilate into white culture. But not this brother here. <laughs> not this brother. <laughs> there were many black friends <laughs> in the early days of Strong Talk. They would come to our church, and we were 70% white at that time. And the word was, how does this black man have all them white people? Old ones at that, gray hair. How they up in, that brother must be a sellout. That brother must. But when they came down, like, man, he ain't no sellout. He for real. How do you answer that? The spirit of God. Because by one spirit, he is called Jews and Greeks and slave and free and men and women to drink from the same well of the spirit. So Jesus is the living water. I'm just trying to hand out cups every Sunday in his name. I don't care who you are. Come get a sip of the living water. That's how it's worked. But Jesus didn't stop being Jewish to minister to the Samaritan woman. And I'm not going to stop being black to minister in a multicultural context. You are looking at a card-carrying black man who is black, black in his blackness. <laughs> what do you mean, Pastor? Let me tell you something. I love my hair texture. I love my nose. I love my lips. And I love my complexion. I love red Kool-Aid. <laughs> I love wearing do-rags. I love soul music, soul train, and soul food. <laughs> I love the black church. I love black preachers. I love black music. I love black sitcoms. And I love black history. I'm a card-carrying black man. But can I tell you something? Can I tell you something that's better than that? Yeah, I'm a card-carrying black man. But above all, I'm a cross-carrying black man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because without the cross, my blackness doesn't mean anything. He puts my blackness in context. And there was another black man who carried the cross for Jesus. The only person who carried the cross was a black man from Africa. Pastor, what you talking about? If you had time, you can look at Mark chapter 15, verse 21. Simon of Cyrene carried the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, where is Cyrene? It is in Libya, which is in northern Africa. So an African man was picked out of the crowd that day to carry the cross of Jesus. He's walking into town. His two sons are with him, Rufus and Alexander. And if you got a son named Rufus, you got to be black. And so they pick him. And God allowed that. Sovereignly, because he knew that in generations to come, people would try to dehumanize descendants of Africa. And so Jesus says, I'm going to value descendants of Africa by allowing one of their children to carry my cross when I could not carry it for myself. He will go down in history as a man of color who carried my cross. And I'm just picking it up like it's a baton. I'm carrying the cross for Jesus just like Simon of Cyrene did. Oh, my goodness. You know, when you watch that movie Black Panther, they go around talking about Wakanda forever. Wakanda forever. 
time to forever. But Charleston, because of Jesus, I got to say, Jesus Christ forever, <laughs> Jesus Christ forever, Jesus Christ forever. He's my identity. He's my reason. He's my song. He's my strength. He's my hope. He's my joy. He's my everything. And when someone from another community has the same Jesus, we got each other. And that's what the world needs to see. So it seems that God allowed African slavery to show man's depravity, to show his power to deliver the slave, and to show his power to save through the slave. You know, he still saves. He still sets free. In that story in Mark 9, when Jesus cast that demon out, and everybody thought the boy was dead, Jesus knew he wasn't dead. Matter of fact, he was alive. And he went over, and he lifted him up to his feet. Can you imagine his testimony from there? The Bible doesn't say what his testimony doesn't say, but you know he went out talking. And he would probably say, you know, from childhood I was bound by a deaf spirit, a dumb spirit. I, I couldn't talk and I couldn't hear. This spirit that had me bound would try to throw me in the fire to kill me, try to throw me in the water to drown me. It would bring stuff out of my mouth. All kind of stuff. Oh, I was on a trek to hell. But one day my father took me to Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus set me free. Jesus delivered me. So this boy's testimony had a but Jesus moment in it. I was bound by an unclean evil spirit, but Jesus. And if we have a but Jesus experience in our lives, it doesn't matter what happened to us or our ancestors before. Yeah, it's part of our story, and God's going to use that so that when I go out and talk to other people who are dealing with spirits, I can tell them what God did for me, he can do for you. But you've got to have a but Jesus moment in your life, especially with race. You know, I used to didn't like white people, but Jesus. You know, I thought black people were inferior, <laughs> but Jesus. You know, I was against interracial dating, but Jesus. You know, I saw black people always complaining and crying about the past. Man, get over it, man. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. I know you don't have no boots on to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, but pull your own self up by the bootstraps, but Jesus. Only Jesus can touch a heart and transform a heart so that, that individual influences family and friends and goes out and changes institutions in the name of Jesus. Let's stand for prayer. Oh, yeah. That's how he redeems. That's how he redeems. Let's pray, God. I'm so thankful to be a part of a church like this. And this was your idea, not mine. This was your idea from the beginning, where you knocked down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, making them one new man, knowing that they would have struggles and issues because of their history and their culture, but... You believe your gospel was enough to supersede their differences. Thank you, Lord. The same power resides today. You've been doing it. We've seen flashes in America of your power to redeem from evil. Lord, would you keep doing it? Would you do it in our generation and in our midst and with our children in ways that we could never recount? But, Lord, we yield ourselves to you. For those who have hurt us, even if it were our own people, Lord, we forgive them. 
we release them. We release what white people did to our ancestors, what they did to us yesterday. Lord, we forgive them. Do your work in this church. Do your work through this church. Oh, Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine. And it's according to the power that is at work within us. To him be the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and the power, both now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. There'll be more next week. Come back next week. There's more, there's more. Have a good day.